This is the Education Gadfly Show. Take that, Donald Trump. We don't win in anything anymore. Ha! What does Gadfly say? Host Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at edexcellence.net. And now, please join me in welcoming my co-host, the Michael Phelps of Education Reform. Robert Pundicio. The glare from my gold medals, is it distracting you? I, I wasn't referring to you being the old guy around here. <laughs> for but, once, but I, for <laughs> once. No, no, I kind of was. I kind of was. I was going to oh, say okay. he should be the Ryan Lochte because Ryan Lochte also has a nice silver hairdo these days. It's very dignified oh, looking. Is it his own or is it? Uh, oh no, he totally dyed it. Okay. And now it's kind of going yeah, green this, because this of the chlorine. Interesting, silver. I mean, is that a sign that he's just aiming for silver rather than gold? What, what's the a sign that he's old. Uh, All right. You know, I, we should tell our audience, Alyssa Schwank is here with us. <laughs> as well the katie ledecky of education reform never that good well done katie ledecky who lives in my neighborhood or just around the corner oh yeah down the street down the street she lives in bethesda she's so and uh all the the swim team folks in our area of course very excited super nice isn't she okay down to earth and grounded and an amazing swimmer oh my lord and that most dominant athlete in any sport on the planet right i don't know i think simone biles is giving her a pretty good run for her money wow that is incredible too. Gravity Man. is a suggestion. So I know this is, I'm sure everybody's saying this, right? But it's kind of like, take that Donald Trump. We don't win in anything anymore. Ha. Artists swimming. We win in gymnastics. That's right. And, and other things, shooting. I uh, mean, what's more American rifle. than that? The air rifle. There yeah. You go. Uh, we also crushed it in the math Olympics. Yeah. Uh, from Checker this week. Yeah. I was talking about that earlier. There you go. So there see, go. see, we're he says already, our best days are behind us. We're already great again. Hey, so uh, we are going to talk about in our, our special segment that we are calling uh, Ed Reform Update, or at least I call it that. I'm not sure anybody else does. Do you, do you guys call it that when I'm I, gone? I do now. We we do a little bit. <sighs> All right. Well, we are going to talk about one article and one article only because it is the article that everybody should read this week. It is by Paul Hill and Ashley Jokum from Education Next Street Savvy School Reform. And I really think it gets into all kinds of issues that we've been talking about mm-hmm. and thinking about. And uh, what I love here, it is a it is a work of political science. I was a poli-sci major. I love it. Earlier this week, Jay Green also had a post talking about how ed reformers needed to understand poli-sci mm-hmm. better. So poli-sci is hot. Now, Jay's point is, is he making this argument over and over again that, you know, the only, the only thing that's going to work politically in ed reform is school choice. Because it's the only method that's going to actually create a constituency uh, that could in any way overcome the power of the status quo that any kind of other effort, standards-based reform, et cetera, et cetera, is bound to lose because uh, the other side is so much more powerful. Uh, But this article raises some questions. It's street-savvy school reform. It talks about uh, this political scientist, E.E. Schatzschneider. Easy for you to say. Did I? Yes. Thank you. He said, likened politics to a fight between two men in a street. If nobody intervenes, the stronger will win, as in uh, the union. Uh, Randy Weingarten, Karen Lewis. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. But if the weaker fighter can get a bystander to join on his side, the dynamic changes. And so uh, they talk about what, what happens in big cities. They look at six big cities that have really tried to embrace what they call the portfolio strategy. You might also just say they've basically embraced charter schools big time, creating high quality charter schools, which eventually generally means shutting down uh, empty, low performing district schools mm-hmm. uh, and try to understand the poli sci of, of how this is going. And, and this seems quite timely because, as you know, there's been a lot of pushback Boy, lately. You think? I mean, uh, you guys didn't talk about this last week, I guess, but Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. coming out basically against Ed Reform. 
Right. Uh, rather stridently so. Stridently. And it surprises me because, and I'm not being naive about this, but if Ed Reform can claim one victory clearly and unambiguously in the last decade or so, it's what? Urban charter schools. Yeah. And yeah. here's, and I guess it wasn't Black Lives Matter. It's called the Movement for Black Lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, parse that how you will. Uh, but it was a stunning uh, repudiation of all things reform. Everything yep. from you know, uh, no more charters to no more Teach for America. It yep. could not have been more yep. more pointed or emphatic. Yep. No, I mean, Diane wrote it, we think, right? I mean, <laughs> is that what we think? Yes. Uh, certainly I, echoed I, I some of approved. her earlier statements. All right. So, um, uh, and then the NAACP. Right. right. And uh, also. also came out against yeah. charter schools. I but, mean, I think this gets really clearly to the third point that Ashley and Paul make in their article. Like, but the, I'm not there yet. Okay. We'll I'm start, not there we'll, yet. We'll Who's hosting this on? thing? Huh? <laughs> what is this mutiny happening here? Hold Take on, charge. We're going to get, <laughs> get there, Alyssa. Let's go through them. There's, there's seven lessons. Let's talk. Let's go through them one at a time. Okay. <laughs> Lesson one, elite support. It has its value and limitations. Right. Mm-hmm. It seems pretty obvious. We we strive at elite support in education reform. Well, we're also in a political moment where elites are under fire, right? Mm-hmm. From both sides, mm-hmm. absolutely. Right. Talks about uh, in Cleveland, the mayor there, who, who we know somewhat and respect hugely, mm-hmm. uh, you know, did build a lot of community support for reform, took it to the state legislature, got it through. Uh, different than in some other cities where you've you, even in, you know, some places have lost the elites. Like in Newark, there was a sense of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and when, once that happens, you're really dead. You know, here in D.C., you see forever the Washington Post editorial board, you know, as the classic elite uh, mm-hmm. institution has been so strongly behind uh, education reform. And, and it, it matters. It, sure. yeah. it, it doesn't make the difference, but it helps. Yeah. And I mean, you certainly can get things done, but we'll get into the other lessons. But yeah. elites are definitely one of the easiest constituencies, I think, for people to sometimes reach. Well, yeah, it sets things in position. motion. Yeah. Agree? And, and, and because look, the argument is, Hey, for the, for the health of our city, for the future of our kids, you know, we need better schools. That right. is not a hard uh, argument to make. Lesson number two, turning parents into allies is essential, but challenging. Challenging and complicated. Well, it's one thing once you've got a whole bunch of parents in charter schools, right? right? Then you've got a natural constituency. But while you're working on that, while there's not that many of them in charter schools yet, it's tough because we parents really only care about our kids. You know, I would argue there's a nuance here that the article, with all respect, elides. And that is, it's easy to get parents exercised and develop a sense of urgency. But I'm I'm not going to name names. Uh, but I do think there's a tendency within the reform world to, to welcome parents' input when it's for political purposes mm-hmm. and perhaps mm-hmm. be not so interested when it comes to what is my kid doing in school all day today. In other words, we want you sure. to help build sure. a constituency. But then we're not that interested in getting you involved in a day-to-day basis. If anything, we might even view you as damage and, and route around you. I'd also add that we want you in your constituency when you agree with us. Right. But when we get to a point where parents are like, I've developed this human capital, I've developed this network, I now have this different opinion, then we get mm-hmm. into a fractured coalition and we get into a coalition that's has different interests at work. And that becomes a really challenging yep. coalition to hold together. I said it, Alyssa said it better. Okay. Lesson three, pay attention to how minority communities perceive the reform. No kidding. Yes. And I love this line. It says, reformers often prefer what political scientist Jeffrey Hennig has called an a-racial narrative Mm. in which school improvement is colorblind. And look, I'm certainly guilty of that, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that is the world I want to live in. And certainly when we make our arguments, uh, you know, we don't tend to go uh, to the the racial piece that that happened. Of course, we all talk about achievement gaps and we talk about equity and- and, The new civil rights movement, which some of us think is a, a, a dumb 
way to talk about this. But, and a little self-serving. Can we but, call it what it is? But, but that communities of color view right. these things very differently. Uh, and if we forget that, they will remind us as they have in the last week. Yeah. Now, here's the thing, though, about the Black Lives Matter, about NAACP. I mean, they are really out of step with African-Americans and Latinos, at least when you look at the polling data. Says right? the white guy. <laughs> what am I supposed to do? All right. Yes, yes, I am. Okay. okay. But yes, says the white guy, citing polls that are, you know, uh, from all sides show still the groups that support charter schools the most are African-Americans and Latinos. Uh, you know so, what? This is where I'm just going to press the default button and say, say, say that choice is an intrinsic good. Um, I, I have no idea. I'm a white guy too. Whether the the Black Lives Matter manifesto that we're looking at speaks for a, a majority or a minority of of the black community, but I choice think we is do choice. Know that. I mean, we know that from polls. I, I'm, I'm I mean, not comfortable even characterizing. Right. So I'm merely going to say, right. choice is its own reward. If if high performing charter schools in urban communities have long waiting lists. Clearly, they're doing something right. Clearly, uh, there's a demand for that. That's enough. Yeah, I do, though, think that it's important that we think about the context and ensuring that it's, there's a lot of talk and it's completely not unfounded about whether you do reform with or to yeah. or. And I think that's yeah. an important component. Yeah, to keep Alyssa's on fire. Yeah, she today. is on yeah, fire. Just, she's going to score about this stuff. And, and it's certainly, water. certainly the case that in these local communities and the advocacy and the big and the fights that are happening in the cities, uh, mm-hmm. it does not help if the leaders on the reform side are not mm-hmm. people of color. Right. But that's yeah. also my point about parents. We like them when they help us politically yeah. and then we kind of neglect them when it comes to the day to day operation mm-hmm. of schools. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Look, I can't get through all of these points. There's a lot of good ones in here, but let, let's already covered the good ones. There's some good ones. Here's here's one more I really like. Taking control creates new liability. I was going to say we should touch on that one because I like that lesson. I mean, here it is. You know, the people have said the reform has become the new status quo. Now, Mm -hmm. in most places, right, that's not I mean, New York City, what are we still at? Like 5% of the kids in charters? I mean, it's uh, now there are a few places where maybe you can make that case, but it It drives the conversation. It drives the conversation, right? But it's true that once you're, you know, the, your, your folks are in charge uh, and once the charters are, you know, up there, parody with the districts uh you know you you break it you own it i was just mm-hmm. gonna say yeah, yeah. The, the, the pottery barn, barn theory cold yeah. hell and and have we done a good enough job with that are we are we ready to take that kind of responsibility mm. i think that's a big looming question for us i also think one of the critical questions is you know the beginning kind of analogy is like this is a fight but when you're in a fight and when you're in this reform battle like circumstances change you can't always just keep doing the same move as the teams change as things like that happen. And it's important to like keep learning lessons about reform and about communities and about how we go about transforming cities and not just continuing to do the same things we've done because that worked in the past. Or my variation on that theme would be, let's not assume that there's nothing wrong with the district setup that just putting really good, smart people in charge of it yeah. won't fix. Yeah. I think that mindset's mm-hmm. a little bit too common in, yeah. in reform circles. Yep. Nope, totally. And, and, and one other thing is that, you know, this article talks a lot about the status quo being mm-hmm. the, the ones we're fighting, which is right. the unions, but also the the district and the da 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 da. da. Mm-hmm. But let's face it, there have been some places where there's been some other political fights have happened. So in Ohio, for example, these for profit charter operators yeah. mm-hmm. uh, that suddenly uh, you know gain power and money and have their own interests money. that are not always the same as kids' interests, and so that we end up having to fight those fights. I mean, it's yep. it's the constant challenge is that we have these narrow interests, people mm-hmm. who work in the system, right? People who mm-hmm. now run for-profit companies that are having getting these contracts. They have very specific interests that are not always aligned with the interests of the kids. The reformers, you know, what, what we've always tried to do is say, we are the ones trying to speak for the kids. We're the ones mm-hmm. trying to focus on 
helping kids get out of poverty, you know, mm-hmm. we're the good guys, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, we got to make sure that we remain, remain the good guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we got to be honest that uh, the bad guys aren't just the typical bad guys. Yeah, I think the one lesson that I wish they kind of had pulled out a little bit more, maybe a lesson eight, is that everyone always acts in their own self-interest. And that's like a key tenet of yeah. political science. And I think that's something that as we bring in data and we bring in you know, school improvement scores and things like that. That's something to also keep in mind. I must act in the interest of our listeners and cut off this great conversation. Again, check it out. Street Savvy School Reform from Paul Hill, Ashley Jokum and Education Next. It is now time for everyone's favorite Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. You've been watching the Olympics like of everybody else? Of course, I've been watching the uh, Olympics. I love it. I do Man, too. the gymnastics, uh, Bowles, what's her last name? The one who just Is knocked it Simone? Out, right, yep. knocked it out of the park with that floor routine. Oh, my. Did you see the floor routine? I, she was like nine feet in the air. Amazing, nine, yeah. at least nine feet. At least and she's made, only three feet. Made tall. it look yeah. like. Nothing, just like right. a walk in the park. But has America ever needed the Olympics more than it needs it? Oh, Absolutely. seriously, this has been, Absolutely. this has totally been. I mean, last night, midnight, what am I doing? I'm watching like yep. men lifting barbells over their heads. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, Amber oh, goes. And that was on Fox News. So bed. that's, you know, better, right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We just, but we must get to work, Amber. Yes. What do you got for us this All week? All right. We got a Mathematica study that examines whether school level value added accurately captures the effectiveness of a principal. Important question, right? Sure. Okay, just tell us yes or no. (laughs) (laughs) Can I go through just a little bit of the findings? Um, Anyhow, they used Pennsylvania data from uh, 2006, 7 through 12, 13. They look at principals who've been involved in a leadership transition, meaning they had to either start leading a school they'd not led before, or they were replaced by an incoming principal. Okay, so leadership transition so that they they can then uh, compare the value added at both of their schools. Okay. Got it. Uh, and then you're not using the same kids. The same kids aren't then contributing to both mm-hmm. the principal and school value added that are being paired together. And so you avoid all these faulty correlations that are being made. Okay. Mm-hmm. And believe it or not, 41% of schools serving fourth through eighth graders had experienced a leadership change during the window that Say they Say that studying. again. What percent? 41% of wow. schools, of schools in Pennsylvania. had wow. experienced a leadership change that served wow. fourth through eight. Yeah. All right. So, okay, fine. I'll go to the bottom line finding. No more than 7% of any given difference in value added between two schools reflect persistent differences in the effectiveness of their current principles. No more no than more 7%. than 7%. Still, but 7%, so, that's no small thing. Well, but, but zero is no more than 7%. Right? <laughs> um, keep in mind, they pointed this out, which I thought was a good point. Uh, this doesn't mean that principles don't vary in their value added, right? Okay. Because they do vary a lot. And, and then they look in the sample and they say the standard deviation of principal effects in their sample, sample is at least 80% of the size of the standard deviation of teacher effects as estimated by Eric Kanishek oh. in his prior studies. Okay. Mm-hmm. So these principles vary a lot, right? And how much they are contributing. Um, but what they're saying here is basically they're very a lot, but a little, very little of it can be predicted by the school value added. Okay. So what's the explanation? The explanation goes back to their whole hypothesis at the beginning, which is school value added likely reflects a combination of influences on student achievement outside of the principal's control mm-hmm. or either the principal, whatever they're doing, they're not doing consistently from one year to the next. So mm-hmm. there you go. 
So what does this say for those of us uh, who claim that the most important person in the building is the principal, that we uh, that, that it's easier to change leaders than it is to change yeah, teachers? 7% is in the it big scheme seems, of things not it huge. It's pretty small, right? isn't it? It does. Um, I don't know what it says, Robert. Um, I'm very bothered by it. But one thing that we got to keep in mind, I remember two weeks ago, for those people who follow the Research Minute, I did another study, same data set, mm-hmm. right? And they used this tool called, they used an evaluation tool. Mm-hmm. And they did find that using that tool was an accurate predictor of principal effectiveness. So, mm-hmm. and you know, if you can figure out the way to develop a tool, maybe you can incentivize some of these behaviors that principals are demonstrating that do right. in fact mm-hmm. impact student achievement. So I don't know. I feel like it's kind of a mixed bag. On the one hand, you say, oh, it's not contributing to school value added. On the other hand, you say, but there do seem to be some measures that do show how and why principles do vary in their effectiveness, even if it's... What I want to know is, is whether value added at Fordham has gone up since I took over from Chuck. <laughs> you don't want to Can we know. work on that? You don't want to know. <laughs> <laughs> don't ask the question. You don't know the answer. More than 7%, baby. More than 7%. Uh, All right. right. I, I, my, my, my head, I, I, maybe it's because I've been on vacation. I'm still scratching my head to try to understand totally what this means, Amber. It but, was uh, a very complicated study that you guys really made me boil it down. And I probably did not do justice <sighs> to Brian Gill and his colleagues at Mathematica. No, but good was, questions, important questions. Question. Thank yes. you for bringing it. All right. That is all the time we've got for this week. Till next week. I'm Robert Pendicio. And I'm Mike Petrilli at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gadfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at edexcellence.net.